Welcome back to the Plenary Session Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Timothy Olivier. And by the time you're listening to this, he is officially an Agilon, which means an attending physician at the University Hospital Geneva. Timothy, it's a pleasure to see you and congratulations on the big promotion. Hi, Vinay. Thanks a lot uh, coming from you. It's, uh, it's uh, really nice and I'm happy to join again a Plenary Session episode with you today. The episodes with Timothy Olivier are the most popular by listener request. People say, VP brings the fire and Timothy brings a breath of fresh air. So that's what we got here. We got fire and fresh air. So let's get started. Yeah, let's get started. Yeah. Here's the topics for today's discussion. Number one, and Fortimab, Vidotin, and Pembrolizumab in the frontline treatment of metastatic urothelial cancer. Number two, HLA, which is the human leukocyte antigen and drugs like Tebentafusp, which is a fusion protein and melanoma GP100 fusion protein that yeah. only works in uveal melanoma and only works if you're HLA A2A, A2.02. Yeah. A2.02. And yeah. it don't work if you're not. And it turns out that the HLA drug development program is, as they say in the business, a little bit racist, a little bit racist. We're going to talk about that. And then what was the third topic we're going to talk about, Timothy? Uh, maybe we could talk about the ODAC meeting about the Code Break 200 trial, if you want. Code Break 200. Great, great, great. Okay, let's start it off. EV pembrolizumab. Look, it got a standing ovation. And yeah. Fortimab Vidotin, pembrolizumab, has an overall survival benefit, okay? And it's like almost a doubling, right? 13 versus, you know, 30-some months. Almost a doubling of overall survival compared against platinum gemcitabine, which is the standard of care. Now, one thing I haven't seen is how many people get carbo, how many people got cis. I haven't seen that yet. One thing I haven't seen is that, in my opinion, the control arm should be the following. Gem, gem cis, if you have a response, you should be on avalumab maintenance. If you don't have a response, and when you prog- you should get Pembro. And then everybody should be getting infortimab vidotin third line in the control arm because infortimab vidotin already has a role there against infortimab vidotin, pembrolizumab in the front line, and the primary endpoint should be overall survival. And I don't know how many people got Avalumab. I don't know how many people got Pembro post-progression. I don't know how many people got EV post-post-progression in the control arm. That's my big question. What about you, Timothy? Yeah, I think that's the the usual question in these uh, trials that are run globally. And I mean, we published on about that uh, post-progression therapy, and it was only in 12%, I think, uh, of registration trial that we had post-progression data that was assessed as optimal. Here, I think we have uh, some piece of data about avalumab maintenance uh, that were presented uh, during ESMO. But, you know, to me, I think it's very important to go into the weeds of the data when you show that. And standing ovation, okay, but uh, I really want to see the data in in details with granularity to see how how strong it's applicable applicable to my current practice. I think that's the main point. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If I told you right now you have metastatic bladder cancer, okay? Mets to the lung. I would imagine be on the control arm. That's your question? No, no, no. My question is six months ago, what's your emotional reaction? You know, I would imagine that you're gonna go, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. You're gonna go home that evening. You're might not feel like cooking dinner. You might just feel like going straight to bed. You're going to feel really depressed. Um, I think for a few days, you're going to be tearful. You're going to think about how you're going to tell your loved ones. You're going to think about 
getting your fares in order. Now we have these data and you're told you have metastatic urethral cancer. I think all those things are true. And so the point I want to make is like, you're going to go home. You're still going to be depressed. You're still going to get your fares in order. So the point I want to make is if you're going to have a standing ovation, let's just talk. I mean, standing ovation, I think is beyond the usual. I'm happy to say this is looking like a step forward. If they have good post-progression therapy, I'm happy to switch. But if you're going to stand and give a standing ovation, you have to think what it's like if you have the diagnosis. And I think it's still heartbreaking. Your thoughts? I have, I have ex exactly the same impression. You see, uh, you know, patient at the end of the day, they are receiving these treatments. These are toxic treatments. Okay, we have the usual word, uh, no new safety signals and this kind of thing. But these are patients that are receiving a treatment. This is metastatic disease. And, you know, for instance, I would say, you know, nivolumab or pembrolizumab in metastatic melanoma, when you have a, a fraction, a significant fraction of patients that are cured, then, okay, you know, I, I, I could understand it. But here, I agree with you. Standing ovation, to me, it's a bit too much. And what I was told, I can say, what I was told is that, you know, some people try to make standing ovation even for other products, and they try, but people don't always stand, you know, you, you know what I mean. So I think there is a kind of a, a bit of, of marketing issue here. Um, I can understand the enthusiasm. I can understand it, but... Standing ovation, it's a bit uh, uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I heard that the company was the one that orchestrated the standing ovation, that they they wanted the standing ovation. They got the standing ovation. They encouraged people to have the standing ovation. And sometimes they fade. Yeah. So that's one. Two, the delivery of the talk. I've heard that it was quite sensational. We're going to have to watch the video. Yeah. I haven't seen the video. Yeah. I mean, this, is a, this can be a personal, you know, personal appreciation, but... Uh, yeah, the talk was a yeah, it was it, it it was a tone very you know dramatic. We can say yeah. Now let's play the other side of the coin for a second. Let's say the optimistic thing. The optimistic thing is that yeah, bladder cancer is not easy to make improvements upon. Um, and you know what, actually, Timothy, I don't know off the top of my head, is there a trial of Gemsys Pembro versus Gemsys then Pembro? Like, do we have that study? Frontline Pembro. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a negative. It's a negative study. Nivolumab is negative too. Okay, I think we do. All right. Um, last point: EV. Is this a chemotherapy or not a chemotherapy? To me, it's a chemotherapy. I mean, we 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 have all these antibody drug conjugate, and we should not forget that. To be honest, they are chemotherapy, and usually they are kind of strong chemotherapy. I don't know what is your experience, but. They're, they can be toxic, um, they are delivering, they're supposed to be delivering the chemotherapy uh, in a kind of targeted way, but we know also that they have activity even when the target is not here for some compounds. So I think it's it's chemotherapy still, and um, and obviously there are you know advances with this antibody drug conjugate. We are not here to say there are no advances, but we also know that there can be you know games on trial design that can, you know, amplify the benefit. We we showed that in many, many instances. So to me, it's chemotherapy. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it's chemotherapy. And I think I actually saw a picture of the grade three, four adverse events. I'm trying to find it now through all these slides. And I think it actually was, looked comparable. I mean, this is not chemotherapy free. This is a chemotherapy. Chemo free at all. And there are some, you know, for some uh, compounds, they have some, you know, uh, 
huge toxicity, some grade five, so fatal adverse events. So should not be, you know, um, trivialized. And uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Can't even find a slide. This is such, this is what one thing I really hate about this, like um, medicine by press release. I mean, I don't have the data, can't find the data, um, you know, the fuck, where is this? Where are these data? Can't find the side effect profile. All right, I'm looking through the slides. All right, let's go to the next topic. HLA. You got a new paper out in JAMA Network Open. It's called Analysis of Human Leukocyte Antigen DR Alleles Immune Release. No, that's not your paper. <laughs> that's somebody else's paper. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't recognized to the title. I say, okay, I published another one. That's great. Eligibility for human leukocyte antigen-based therapeutics by race and ethnicity. Timothy Olivier. At all. Oh, this is ridiculous. Only my name gets cut in the at all. That's fine. That's fine. All right. At all. You can click, you can click on it and, and your name will appear. Yeah. And this is an original investigation under the heading equity, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. The, the DEI. Yeah. I didn't even know you did DEI research, but now I know. Hey, I think it's the first time I publish in this kind of uh, section. Yeah. So tell us about it, Timothy. This is actually, this is actually the real deal. I mean, I think people can say whatever they want about yeah, this is I a real this is the real deal, the real problem. You really it's a real problem. It's very interesting. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not uh, objective in in uh, judging my own work, but I think it's very interesting because all this started when we analyzed Tebentafus as you told. So Tebentafus is a fusion protein and uh, it was FDA approved in 2022 for patient with uveal melanoma with one subtype of HLA. So here we need some background about what is HLA. So HLA are um, a couple of genes that are located in chromosome six. And basically they are very important for the immune system to distinguish between the self and the non-self. And apart, uh, maybe identical twins, every each individual, each individual will have a kind of um, HLA identity, which is different from every people. And um, HLA matching, for instance, is very important in uh, you know organ transplantation, this kind of thing. And recently, I would say maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, some products were designed to bind to some specific HLA molecules. And this is where the study, our study gets uh, uh, interesting. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's interesting. So we saw that Tebentafusp was approved. Um, we asked ourselves uh, who the FUSP is going to get Tebentafusp. We saw it was HLA targeted that led us down the rabbit hole of, well, you know, how many drugs are being given only to people with certain HLA subgroups? And what does that look like? Yeah. So what we did, we looked at every trial uh, looking at an investigation agent, thera therapeutic, uh, therapeutic intervention, and uh, with participants restricted to some kind of HLA. Then we selected, we found uh, 263 trials. We uh, identified which HLA subtype was used for restriction. And what we also um, did, we uh, tried to estimate the prevalence for these HLA subtypes in seven ethnic categories 
based on a database that is um, done over uh, 8 million people worldwide. And then we try to estimate the likelihood of being enrolled in such trials according to your ethnic background. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is every single drug under drug development in oncology and beyond that's restricted to one H one or more HLA subtypes, you have pooled those data. And you're going to say, look, anyone can say uveal melanoma is a disease of mostly white people. That's what they're going to say. But you're going to say, I'm going to look at every disease, prostate cancer, myeloma, and beyond, and look at all the HLA drugs. Let's see how many times white people can get it, black people, Asian people, et cetera. I think the first finding is that most of these uh, drugs, most of this development is anti-cancer drugs. So it was 98% of our trials. Um, most of these in interventions are vaccine therapy or cellular therapy, you know. And the other very important finding is that almost 90% of uh, HLA inclusion criteria are either HLA A2, either HLA A2 slash 02.01. So this is, I think, the, the, the landscape is, th is this one. So based on this and based on the estimation of prevalence of each HLA, we estimated the likelihood, maximum likelihood of being enrolled in such trials. And this is the second part of our results. Do you want to comment on the first part or? No, I mean, I like the first part. I want to comment on the second part. So tell me the second part. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, um, the, likely, the likelihood of being enrolled in a trial, HLA-based trial, was 53% if you were from European or European descent, and it was 33% uh, if you were uh, from Africa or African-American individuals. Mm -hmm. So you had 1.6 times, you were 1.6 times more likely to be eligible for such trial if you were from European or European descent as compared to African or African-Americans. You have also the data for other groups, Asian, Pacific Islander, and other groups. But basically, I think I think the findings are two, two, you can describe it uh, in two ways. Obviously, if you are using HLA, because HLA are, you know, um, uh, diverse in the world, you will find discrepancy between ethnicities or races. This, this is by definition. But because of the HLA being used in majority HLA-A2 or HLA-A2-0201, because of these ones, you have this kind of inequality. So interesting because I bet very few people doing this work have even stood back and thought about it. Everyone is pursuing the HLAs they think are most plausible or that they're easiest to find or maybe easiest to do the in vitro work because they're the most developed, etc. Very few people are thinking about the implications of a drug development program. And you said something like 200 drugs under development and white people are 1.6 times more likely to benefit from these drugs. Ultimately, if they're, if any of them are, if any fraction are successful, then black people, which is concerning, which is a real disparity, a disparity in the drug development program. Go on. Yeah. What I think is interesting, it's really, you know, by, by the biology and by the, the, HLA subtype that are being used, it's by definition, there's an inequality. I mean, it's not an, an, a kind of external, you see what I mean? It's not a kind of external uh, factor. It's really because of those HLA being used and the fact that 
the HLA are uh, diverse in the world that you have search results. I think, as you said, maybe there are historical reasons. In our work, we identify one trial, you know, uh, with T cells that were engineered and they were developed from a patient that was HLA A0201. And I think, you know, it was kind of, the development was like that, but at some point, I think they there were no incentivization to try to find other type of HLA, more diverse HLA subtypes and things like that. And it's very interesting because in one work, we cite this in the discussion, uh, the researchers were really aware of that and they they were really looking at more diverse HLA subtypes in the, uh, you know, the process of epitope identification. This is a bit technical, but, you know, usually these HLA molecules are used to uh, bind to some new antigens or epitopes coming from uh, tumors mm -hmm. and, 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 and yeah, maybe I'm going to parlor, but you can comment. No, I think... Um... I think it makes a very fair point that sometimes it's these idiosyncrasies, but we have to also ask ourselves, well, why was that the first patient you saw? Um, yeah, I think yeah. I think it's uh, it's likely the first patient was a white patient. It's likely, and it's likely, you know, that the pipeline went, went on and on and those questions were not raised. And maybe our paper, you know, will um, raise and, and, you know, researcher will be more aware of this question and maybe they will try to, um, try to identify other HLA subtypes to, you know, broaden. The, I, I don't know, you know, the researcher would have to answer to that. Um, you were talking about uveal melanoma and we exemplify with prostate cancer where, where the incidence is uh, higher in uh, black in individuals. And here also most uh, HLA-based trials were um, using the HLA A2 or A0201. So, yeah. I agree. I agree. I think I talked about this in one of my online videos and somebody wrote to me and they said, well, this just makes sense. They're giving drugs to the countries that can pay for them. I thought to myself, that doesn't sound good either. I mean, what the hell are you talking about? That sounds pretty bad as well. Maybe worse. Go on. I, I, my feeling is that it's more, my feeling, I, I don't know the reasons, but my feeling it's, uh, it's more like it was developed like that. And, you know, as you said, the in vitro, you know, techniques are here, they're efficient and, and you know, and actually our paper was reviewed by, uh, I can't say the name, but a very well-known immunologist uh, in, in cancer. Yeah. And then what did that immunologist have to say? No, he was very, very sympathetic for our findings. Yeah. Yeah, I presented this in my division conference and, every, and uh, nobody had any objections. I, I think Everyone agreed. It's not a criticism for the researchers. It's really to show that uh, this kind of uh, structural bias can happen. I mean, even I, I don't think anybody was really aware of that, and uh, and uh, and I think it's important to try to overcome, as as we said in our conclusion, to try to overcome this restriction to, you know, be uh, very very wide and uh, in the in the opportunity to be eligible for innovation. Yeah. The paper is Eligibility for HLA-Based Therapeutics by Race and Ethnicity. The last point I want to say about this paper is, and I'll take the heat for this, there are many papers under this heading, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, that I think are very, very poor. They're claiming a structural bias, their methods are faulty, they haven't really proven it, and the reason they slip through peer review is that nobody has the balls to say 
this paper sucks. Nobody has the courage to say that, okay? So I don't think they're doing a favor for the field by offering weak sauce papers. Meanwhile, the thing that we have found is a real problem, okay? It's a real problem and it's really conclusively shown. And this is the kind of work that should be done in this space. So I think to me, it's also a commentary on if you are going to do low credibility science, you are not going to advance the cause. You've got to think harder and try to find the real places where there are disparities. This was one that was, you know, hiding in plain sight under everyone's nose. Nobody talked about it until we put it on the map. Yeah, yeah. And also, if I can add, uh, I'm, I mean, we tried also to publish it in other peer-reviewed journals. And we had some, um, I would say, surprising pushback. And maybe it was, uh, you know, disturbing for some research i don't know the the the, the causes the root causes but it was a bit surprising as you say yeah. and some of those journals are are eager to publish diversity equity inclusion papers they just want to publish the ones that are irreproducible and like low quality i don't know why they want to do that but so yeah no so comment no the comment paper, the papers and uh, um you know it's a uh, german network open so it's uh open access by definition and uh, you can see for yourself if you are convinced by our results, but uh, that's pretty Maybe. straightforward. Yeah. Maybe one of these days I'll pick some of these low quality DI papers and do a whole podcast on why they don't prove what they think they prove. Think and you, you already did some videos. I did one on the maternal, yeah, the concordance, racial concordance of doctor, patient, the maternal one, the PNAS paper. There's another one on what are the race of students who get more disciplinary action that's just riddled with problems and they're claiming that it's racist, the disciplinary action. Um, uh, there are lots of papers that have real big problems. But meanwhile, the HLA landscape, nobody wants to talk about. That's 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 actually structural racism. Okay, next topic. Okay. Sotoracib. I heard somebody say it's Sotoracib. Sotoracib or Sotoracib? Well, you know what? You don't need to know how to say it because this shit's going to be pulled from the market. <laughs> Eventually, it's going to get pulled from the market. So, I yeah. Know, I don't know. Yeah. Is it yeah, Sotoracib or Sotoracib? I mean, you know, in French, we don't have this kind of stress accent. So we say Sotoracib. But sotoracib. I would say so. I would say Sotoracib. If I think about it, yeah, Sotoracib. Yeah. But every once in a while, I say one oh, of the names you know of these what? drugs. You should, you should call it Lumacras. Lumacross, yeah, Lumacross. Every once in a while, I say the name of one of these drugs, and somebody writes in and they say, "Actually, you're not pronouncing it correctly. It's pronounced sotoracib, not sotoracib, or something." And I say, "You do understand that somebody just made this fucking word up like 15 minutes ago, okay? It's not a real word. They just made it up, so I can pronounce it however the fuck I want to pronounce yeah, yeah. it. You're out of your goddamn right. mind. It's, you're out of your goddamn mind if you think it has a. You have it's a, not. A, a, you have a historical way yeah. to pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> It's the way the ancient Babylonians called it. Get the fuck out of here. You just made that shit up and you're making it up these ridiculous names. All right, let's put that aside. Let's talk about it. Where does the story begin? Let's talk, tell me about Codebreak 100, Codebreak 200. We published a paper a year ago, the ODAC, the new findings. Do the first part, two minutes, the summary. Code, Codebreak 100, oh, 200, and what summary, we had put. Yeah. Okay. The summary, I think it was really, you know, uh, uh, an amazing pharmacological advance to target the Kira's uh, oncogene mutation. Are you a KOL? So, you sound like a KOL. No, go on, go on. <laughs> I mean, Kira's is, a, Kira's is a very, very common uh, oncogene mutation in cancer. Yeah. It was undruggable for decades. 
And so when these KRAS inhibitors came along, this was really a pharmacological advances. So there were a lot of enthusiasm. To, to be precise, this is a KRAS G12C inhibitor. So it's not for every KRAS mutation. So it's already a restriction. Cold break 100 showed activity. So activity, the ability to shrink tumor, um, and it showed activity. And cold break 200 was the trial to, um, so based on the cold break 100 trial, Sotorosib was FDA approved on the accelerated approval pathway. It was already all, also approved in Europe, in Switzerland, in the same kind of pathways. And cold break 200 was the randomized clinical trial to assess the efficacy, not activity, the efficacy of Sotorosib and the trial was a randomized clinical Wait, trial. Let's pause right here. Okay. The first point I want to make to you, does if you were approving, first you're right. Okay, drugging RAS was always difficult. Why? Drugging RAS is like drugging a beach ball. It's big and round and slippery and there's no real shallow binding. It's a shallow binding pocket. It's not a deep, deep binding pocket like BT, like, so like BCR huh? Abel, huh? You're also a KOL. You're very good. <laughs> I've watched the videos. I watched the car. I see how these. I see how they talk. Okay, but also Harold Varmus, who discovered oncogenes and RAS, was the head of the NCI, and he put, you know, hundred million dollars into drugging RAS because it was his like, you know, his baby because he discovered it. Hmm. This is weird. I notice my camera has turned off. Hmm. Okay. We might have to go to backup camera. Why did it turn off? That's a bit concerning. Did it run out of battery? Let me pause a second and fix it. I drink some water. Oh. <clears throat> the camera did not turn off, just the external battery. Or just the external monitor. All right. All right. So Harold so, so Harold Varmus wanted to drug this thing. All right, great. Now let's say we got the drug. Oh, and the people who drugged it, you know, everyone's like celebrates them. They win all these awards. Whatever. The first question is, how does the drug get approved? Uncontrolled study response rate. Let me stop you right there. What the hell are we doing? Randomized controlled trial, relapse refractory lung cancer, RAS mutation, um, you know, G12C mutations and randomize them to sort Sotorosib or investigator choice in the United States, primary endpoint overall survival. That's the first study they should have done. They didn't do that study. They approved based on uncontrolled response rate. Squ you know, they're wasting our goddamn time. And this is going to factor in because at the end of this drug development history, we will have no clue. We'll have no clue if this drug improves overall survival. First trial, they fucked it up. That's my, that's my statement. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree even more because as we will be talking after, because of the accelerated approval, this, you know, really polluted the trial. And, and we will talk about that after. Yeah. Yeah. So the first question is, the accelerated approval is problematic. The second point is, you already had the code break coming imminently. It's not like you're saving so much time. We saw this with um, polo. Why is the primary endpoint of polo pancreas cancer PFS? Are you out of your goddamn mind? It's pancreas cancer. The primary endpoint should be overall survival. This is lung cancer. The primary endpoint should be overall survival. It shouldn't be progression-free survival. So let's talk about yeah. code break 200, which is- yeah. So, yeah, okay, go on, go on, yeah. All right, now you're saying- uh, So anyway, we made the point, accelerated approval wrong. Now code break 200, the confirmatory study, randomized control trial, 
okay? It is in the second line setting. It is docetaxel versus sotorasib and KRAS, G12C, mutation, non-small cell lung cancer, after progression on chemotherapy, doublet, plus or minus pembrolizumab, right? That's the yeah. trial. All, all, all patients should have received immunotherapy. That was good, yeah. Oh, they required them to get immunotherapy? Okay, good. Before all right, all right, good for them. All right, so. And um, PFS this... by blinded independent central review as the primary endpoint. No. Okay, overall... problem number one. PFS Probably. shouldn't be the primary endpoint. This is lung cancer, okay? You don't need a surrogate endpoint when the primary endpoint is accruing every day. Problem number two, the original sample size was what? And then they did what to the sample size? So the original sample size was 650 and they did a protocol amendment to show, um, I mean, to have the sample size, it, uh, the, the final sample size is 330. And then they say later, because the sample size is smaller, that's why we didn't have a survival benefit but the same thing could be said for, that's why you didn't find out your drug is killing people. It could have a survival decrement and you don't see that either because you turn down the power on your trial. You put your head in the sand. And actually maybe we'll come to that later, but we, we, have, some, we have some alarming signals that, that, that are pointing to the possibility of a survival decrement. The first signal is um, that you have early rapid progressors in sotoracib, meaning people with the first assessment showing more than 30% of progression uh, based on the change of uh, diameter sum, which is not the case in the docetaxel group. This is the first thing. You have also a numerical difference with 64% of patients that have died uh, with sotoracib versus 54% of patients uh, with docetaxel, so 10 percentage point less. It's not significant, but as you said, the power, was, I mean, the sample size was cut, so we are just left with a trial with uh, this kind of question. And um, and maybe we can, yeah, other points were, were what we made very early on was the control arm. So the control arm of docetaxel is already a suboptimal control arm because we have at least three other options. Two of them have shown a PFS benefit and one of them have showed an overall survival benefit against docetaxel. Uh, those are the REVEL trial, um, uh, ULTIMATE trial. I mean, we have other options that are better than docetaxel. So this is a point we made. Do you want to comment on that? Mm. Not the really. control arm is suboptimal because uh, docetaxel ramucirumab has beaten docetaxel. The authors knew that. So they're using a shitty control arm, classic. Um, primary endpoint's bad, control arm is bad, sample size has changed. Now talk about crossover, the fourth so screw crossover. up. Yeah, so crossover was decided at the same time as lowering the sample size and it was made by regulatory guidance. And I think this is all the, you know, to me, it's really a regulatory failure from the FDA because I think they knew that they would approve the drug a few months later. They knew that patient, because the drug would be uh, approved on the accelerated approval pathway, patient would want to get access to the drug. So they cut the sample size and they allowed, uh, allowed it for crossover. And again, I encourage people to go to the paper from Alison Aslam and yourself, 2018 crossover published in Annals of Oncology. You describe the problem of problematic crossover, when crossover is desirable, when crossover is problematic, and this is a problematic crossover. 
you don't know yet the efficacy of sotorasib and you are allowing crossover to sotorasib. So maybe that's, to... that's, a, that's a very well-cited paper about when crossover is necessary and when it's not necessary. But sometimes, you know, it's not cited properly. Sometimes it's... I know. I know. <laughs> no, okay. But what does it show? It basically says... But I know you are explaining very well. Uh, yeah, go on, go on. Oh, fuck. I fucked up the microphone for a little bit. Okay. Shit, I'm going to have to fix that audio. One of the points of the paper is that if a drug, if a drug is being tested for fundamental efficacy, i.e. you never, you don't yet know if it improves survival in any context, you don't want crossover. You, 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 you want a clean trial, not polluted, not confounded. You want to know, does the drug extend survival? So Torosib had never shown a survival benefit. As we're going to talk about, there's a concerning safety signal that actually causes death over docetaxel. Um, it never showed a survival benefit. You don't want crossover. You didn't want crossover in Cipolucyl T. You do want crossover if a drug is already used in a ladder line of therapy and you're moving it up to the front line. That's like, what you do like, want crossover. Like checkpoint inhibitor in EV Pembro. Yeah. Yeah. Like checkpoint inhibitor in EV Pembro. Uh, like even EV in EV Pembro. Like uh, checkpoint inhibitor in checkmate 177. Like checkpoint inhibitor in Keynote uh, 48. Like checkpoint inhibitor in uh, every single one of the kidney cancer studies. Um, that's when you want to have mandated crossover. And Allison and I were the people who conceptualized this framework for crossover before we came along. People didn't think about it clearly. This trial should not have had crossover. The regular authority authorities, I don't even know what it means to say that they wanted it. I don't know if they wanted it or they just said you could do it if you wanted and the company wanted it. These are all but twisted you know, by the company. In a sense, it was difficult not to allow crossover if your drug is uh, approved. I mean- well, that's why we started by saying that the original approval is shitty. They yeah, yeah, they, they set the conditions yeah. up to confound their own study. They that's confound, true. they set up the conditions because they gave this acceptable. And Timothy, they didn't need to do any of this. You no. could have done a clean study instead no. of instead of Code Break 100, you would have had the drug approved a year sooner if it worked. And it would never, actually, I suspect it actually doesn't work. To be honest with you, I bet this drug, the question is this, by having this drug in your armamentarium, do you improve outcomes for patients or not? Living longer, living better. We don't know the answer to that question. And my guess is we don't improve outcomes for patients. Yeah, and actually, I think uh, it's very difficult now for physicians you know, to decide. I mean, when you, you are in the second line setting, I think we, you, I mean, it's, why, it's what we are doing daily. Uh, you have to go in the weeds of this trial, to, to go in the limitation of this trial, to really discuss with the patient of other options, for instance, you know, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, or I mean, there are other options, you know, and uh, and um, maybe maybe this drug, you know, have a have a setting where it's really beneficial, but we we don't know yet. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Okay, we got to go to our other meeting. So let's wrap this up with with the following. We made these points. We published this in Translational Oncology. This was all well documented. Then finally, the FDA has an ODAC meeting. The ODAC meeting basically agreed with everything we said. They validate all our points. They did two things that we couldn't do because we don't have access to the primary study data. One of those things is an imputation around when PFS events occurred. And the other thing is, um, an is, a, is a reanalysis of early versus late um, censoring. Um, why don't you talk, to, talk us through those two analyses? Because I think they're pretty clever. Yeah, and very clever. Yeah, very clever. Very clever. I will try to explain it uh, simply. I mean, the, the PFS are assessed every six weeks and in one analysis, which is called uh, interval censoring analysis, 
they just randomly, you know, um, randomly uh, affect the PFS events over those six weeks. And what they found is that the PFS benefit, which is which was already reported as 1.1 months, which is pretty low, it could be as low as five days. Yeah. So, so let me make this point. So then basically PFS is a binned endpoint. It typically only occurs when you look for it, but we know it didn't occur on that day. It probably occurred in the days prior. If you assume that the progression event could have occurred at any time between those two six weeks, you take a measly, by the way, it's a measly one point some month PFS benefit, 1.7, right? It's 1.1. 1.1. 1. 1. 1. Yeah. 1 you take a measly 1.1 month PFS. 1. What's that? The median is 1.1. Okay. So you take a 1.1 month PFS benefit and it could be as low as a five day benefit just by assuming the progressions occurred at random during the month, which basically means basically means there may not even be a PFS benefit. That's the yeah. first point. Now do early versus late censoring. Early versus late, um, uh, it's it's more technical. So I, I would try to go fast to be fast. But basically there were a, a lot of discordance between the investigator and the central assessment. And they did some, you know, sensitivity analysis to try to, uh, to try to correct for that. And they did what is called a tipping point analysis. Mm -hmm. And they found that if the patient that were censored early had a 50% lower chance of presenting the event, the PFS benefit would totally evaporate in the sense it would be no longer significant. So they made other, you know, other sensitivity analysis. So we, we can't go through each of them, but it was very interesting to see these uh, analyses that we couldn't have been done because we didn't have access to raw data. And basically the conclusion was that the PFS results could not, uh, were not assessed as reliable. Unreliable. Mm. my worry i don't know i, I think and the other way to unpack that is to say that if you were on docetaxel they they pulled you off before you progressed the investigator called progression early and if you were on sotorasib they pulled you off after okay and then they, yeah go on no they tend to do that they they tend to assess a progression later in the sotorasib group and earlier in the docetaxel group they showed that with individual patient data. Which means that- The investigator the tended to, to assess for progression earlier than the central uh, central review. And that's kind of problematic because it's a type of informative censoring. Actually, you're censoring people not at random. You're censoring some people, not other people. And you're kind of biasing all the PFS estimates. So the way around that is they needed to be a double dummy study. They needed to be double blind. Double blind, double dummy. Yeah. It wasn't. All right, well, we got to go to our other meeting. Let's say, what are the closing thoughts of this conversation? Number uh, one. Yeah, go on. Number one. Well, okay, you can, I'll go and then you go. Uh, go on, yeah. Evie Pembro. Evie Pembro, uh, yes, looks promising. Yes, an advance in bladder cancer. No standing ovation, kind of tasteless. Also, if you told you that you had bladder cancer tomorrow and you're going to be dead in 30 months rather than 13 months, it's still pretty shitty. So I don't think anybody patient is having a standing ovation, like knowing that death is imminent anyway. I think it's kind of it's kind of obnoxious. The standing ovation was started by the company. Next question, how many people got Pembro second line? They are reporting that. I got the slide. You sent me to me. Um, and then the real question, how many people get EV third line in the control arm? We don't know. 
We need to know the answer to that. Um, that's going to be one question. We also need to know how many people got adjuvant treatment uh, and what, how much, and how quickly they relapsed, et cetera. There are a lot more questions to ask. So right now, I'm, I, I want to read the paper a little bit more fully before I comment uh, about whether or not this is as great as they say. Number two, HLA, um, you know, instead of doing your paper that says black doctors have half the rate of neonatal mortality as white doctors, which is on the face ludicrous, um, and the paper itself does not actually ascribe doctors in a accurate manner <laughs> to the patient, uh, because the Florida data set doesn't have that, instead of doing that kind of low credibility science, what you should be doing is looking at the HLA drug landscape and seeing that that is real structural racism. That was the point there. Number three, on this question of Sotorasib, we saw it a mile away. This drug's got big problems. FDA has given them one last chance, which by the way, you know, you shouldn't keep giving chances. You're, you're blowing your p-value out of the water, by the way. Um, we have to write about that. Uh, but they get one more chance. Um, and we will never know if this drug extends survival because this new trial in the frontline setting is PFS primary yeah. endpoint. A lot That's of problems. Cool. A lot of problems. We have another paper coming out on that. Okay. Last thoughts, Timothy. No, I think you summarized it uh, very well. I, I don't have really things to add. Um, yeah, I think we cover different topics and interesting topics. Uh, I'm like you, you know, I really want to see the details of the data of EV Prembro. And, you know, I'm always happy when there are, you know, improvements. But um, I feel that the, the field is, you know, going to kind of star system and, you know, marketing and, and it really, you know, it, it's not really the sense uh, to me of uh, of the core of what we are doing daily with our patients. So, yeah, it uh, it's uh, a bit strange to to see that. And for the other topics, I mean, we will have more to say soon, I hope. Yeah, hopefully we publish our paper on that. All right. You've been listening to Plenary Session Podcast. Plenary Session Podcast is the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I haven't done that in a long time. If you like this show, here's what you can do. Number one, subscribe to the Drug Development Letter. It's drug. It's developdrugs.substack.com. Number two, follow my YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow Timothy's YouTube channel. It's called Primum Non Nocere. Yeah. How do you say? Primum Non Nocere. It's Latin. First, do no harm. Okay. I will try to put videos in English and in French. And uh, obviously, many contents uh, will be the work we are doing together. But um, yeah, there should be new content out soon. Yeah. I think it's a great channel. You have a video out there already. It's a spectacular video. Timothy might be the only man with a better background than me. You got a lo very lovely background in that video, Timothy. I mean, um, I mean you also you also teach me uh, the, the material and all these, so you know I have to. Uh, you, I mean, you just we're, we're using the same microphone. Listeners will know. Um, it's okay, not by, it's not by uh, by by chance, you know. It's not by chance. It's not by chance. It's like early. It's like early pull, early censoring, late censoring. There's something going on there. It's not. It's not a random event. Um, then we've got sensible medicine Substack, yeah. which is moved to sensible.med sensible-med.com, Vinay Prasad's observations and thoughts, which is drvinayprasad.com. I moved it off that Substack platform so that it will be easy for people to find. And um, I'm on Twitter. You're on Twitter. That's it. I think that's it. What else we got? The book really? Malignant, always worth reading. We're going to do our book club more. Yeah, We're almost and, done. And, and the book Malignant is also in French, available in French. for. Oh, for and Japanese. 
I got the Japanese translation right here on my shoulder, right there. The yeah, Japanese yeah. translation. If you like Japanese, it's in Japanese. You like French, it's in French. <laughs> um, all right. On that positive note, we got another meeting to get to. Yes, last yeah. thought, Timothy. Oh, I wanted to say on that positive note. Yeah. On that positive note. All right. Congratulations on your promotion. And we'll be back soon. See you later.